Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Love like no other. I love that we sang that song. Um, I believe that. I believe he is a love better than anything else out there. I know this worship team believes that. I know we as a ministry believe that and hope that you and pray that you believe that and know that too. And here's the thing, guys. The first followers of Jesus also believed that. And they believed it so deeply that they dropped everything to, to chase after Jesus, to follow Jesus and chase after that love that is truly better than anything. You see, 2,000 years ago, people believed that so deeply that they started a movement that is now the church today. People who believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, died on a cross and walked out of a grave and whose love is better than anything else. And the first followers of Jesus <clears throat> were just ordinary people. They're a ragtag group of guys. A lot of them were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector. They all came from ordinary spaces and places, and they lived obscure lives. No one really knew them until one day Jesus comes up to each of them, and he says, hey, do you want to live life and life to the full? And they say, yes. And he says, well, drop everything, come and follow me. And so they start following him. And these first few men, these group of 12 guys, they start walking with Jesus. They start talking with Jesus. They start experiencing his love. And they realize that he's different than anyone they've ever met. And they start going on the biggest adventure of a lifetime. They're watching him heal people. They're watching him bring people from dead back to life. They are in awe. And then they hear him start talking and preaching about this kingdom that he's going to usher in that is a kingdom marked by peace and joy and wholeness and no more brokenness, no more sorrow. And they are excited and they are giving up everything to follow this man named Jesus until one day, Quite literally, the world goes dark, all the lights go out, and there he is, hanging on a cross, breathing his last breath. And all these disciples are crushed, defeated, and hopeless. I thought he was supposed to bring life and life abundantly. He's dead now. What do we do? So a lot of them go back to the one thing that they did know how to do, their old jobs, their old ways of life. And for a lot of them, that was fishing. And so here we are. There's a boat full of followers of Jesus old um, that just witnessed him die, watched him breathe his last, and they go back to the one thing they know how to do, and that's fishing. And on that boat is one particular follower of Jesus named Peter. And Peter loved Jesus a lot. He loved Jesus very intensely. You see, just weeks prior being on this boat and watching Jesus die, he had told Jesus, Jesus, I'm with you to the end of the age. Wherever you go, I will go. I am following you. I will never leave your side. Even if everyone else abandons you, I will be with you. I will go to war for you. I will fight for you. I will die for you. That is how loyal of a friend I am, how loyal of a follower I am. I love you, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. And then what ends up happening um, is Jesus gets arrested 
and Peter kind of starts to prove himself, right? He sees Jesus get arrested. He pulls out a sword, and he hacks at the guy arresting Jesus, ends up chopping his ear off. It's a kind of gory scene, the whole thing, but it's in a very intense and loyal love that Peter's demonstrating. But then they end up taking Jesus. Peter is kind of, again, it seems like he's staying true to his word. He says, I'm going to never leave your side. He follows the people that are taking Jesus, just slightly behind them so they can't really see him, but he's keeping an eye on Jesus, and then he starts to see Jesus get beat. Then he starts to see Jesus get spat on. Then he starts to see people strip Jesus of his clothes and whip him over and over again until he can barely stand up. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and Peter is terrified. And then a little girl comes up to him and says, hey, don't, don't you know that guy that they're whipping? Don't you know Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? And he's so terrified that he goes, no. I, I don't know who that is. Don't associate me with him. I, I don't even know where he's from. I don't know his name. I'm not associated with him. A man who once said, I will never abandon you or leave your side and would die for you is now denying Jesus. And not just once. He doesn't just do it twice. He denies knowing Jesus and associating with him three different times. And so here Peter is in a boat with a couple other followers of Jesus, and they're fishing. And I imagine that it's silent. I imagine for a moment some of them are just in their head and thinking, running things over, like, did we really just devote our lives to this guy for nothing? He just died on a cross, and like, is it all over? What was all this for? And I'm sure he's thinking, I'm embarrassed. I can't believe I, I followed him, and then I told him I would be with him, and then I let him die. Like, who am I? What am I doing? And then one of them hears someone shouting from the shore. They're off of the shore. They hear someone. They look. They see someone waving and greeting them, and they're like, who is that? They start talking back and forth, and then one of them realizes, oh my gosh, is that Jesus? They're like, wait, no way. It can't be. Jesus died. And then they look a little closer and they're like, I think that's Jesus. And so they're like, let's row back to Jesus. But Peter, Peter loved Jesus so intensely that he jumped out of the boat. He didn't wait for the rest of the guys to row back to shore. He jumped out of the boat and swam back to shore. He's hurrying back to shore, runs up this like rocky shore right up to Jesus. And sure enough, there he is standing right in front of him, Jesus, alive in flesh and bone, smiling and looking right at him, and Peter's right there. He's able to put his hands on him. It is Jesus. How can this be? And he's looking into his eyes, and they're the same eyes that he remembered. They're as bright and as real as he ever remembered, filled with grace and compassion and love, and there he is, and Jesus asks him, Peter, here I am. I'm alive. I'm real. Don't you love me? And Peter goes, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter. Do you love me? And then in that moment, I can imagine Peter's embarrassed and, then, and excited at the same time, excited that Jesus is alive and well, but he's thinking, oh my gosh, I denied Jesus three times, and he just asked me if I loved him three times. What is going through his head? It becomes a very awkward moment for Peter. A very uncomfortable question, do you love me? Because it is so direct and so personal to Peter. Three times to match the three denials. Um, you see, he had just said, Jesus, I will die for you, and then he denies him and flees from him. Now he's embarrassed. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? It's the same question before you today. It's an awkward and uncomfortable question for each of us, just like it is for Peter, because it is so direct and it is deeply personal. 
You see, the heart of this question, do you love Jesus, highlights the fact that following Jesus cannot be reduced to formalities or external virtue signaling, right? It cannot be reduced to simple words and simple actions. It has at its very center, following Jesus, Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, Jesus from Nazareth. It is direct and it is personal because he, Jesus, is personal. So do you love him? You see, that's also a question that can be misunderstood, right? Fewer words have been more hijacked and devalued in our world than the word love, right? Our romantic narratives, our ideals, our favorite movies, books, and love stories, all of them have taught us that love is something powerful. It is something magical and enchanting and something that you can fall into and something that you can fall out of. And so a question like, do you love Jesus, can be misunderstood to mean, do you have a strong powerful, overwhelming, emotionally driven feeling toward Jesus. But love is much more than feelings and falling. We love in a wide range of emotions and in a wide range of contexts, right? That word means different things in different situations. The way that I love my wife, Lexi Brooke, she's a doll, is completely different than the way that I love Chick-fil-A, which is also completely different than the way I love a margarita, right? The way that I love you guys, and I love some of you guys a whole lot, I would go to war for Bane, is totally different than the way that I love my soon-to-be daughter who I haven't even met yet, right? Like we love differently based in different, we use that word differently based on different situations and different contexts. I literally on Saturday night or Friday night stood in the pouring rain and it was cold listening to Chris Stapleton because I love Chris Stapleton, right? But that is entirely different for the way that I love you right? Totally different meaning. That word gets reduced all the time, means different things. So what do I mean when I ask, do you love Jesus? How do we love Jesus? What does that love look like? That's the question that we're going to answer today in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, flip open there. Technically, we're going to kind of go all the way through 20, but really, I'm just summarizing 19 and 20 for you, and we're going to really study some of the passages in chapter 18 specifically. If you don't have a Bible, sweat not, it'll be on the screen, or you can steal one from the back. Um, But let me give you some context on where we're at. One of the main characters in this book, uh, if you're just joining us, is this man named David. Um, And David is in the family tree of Jesus. He's way up there. You see, Jesus came from the royal line of David. It was a line of kings that were ruling over the people of God. um, And Jesus comes from that line. So a lot of David's life is, and his story is meant to point us to Jesus. So keep that in mind. And we're going to see that David is the object of a lot of people's love. And there are two other characters. We're going to see Jonathan, who's the son of the current king. So he's next in line, heir to the throne. Um, And then there's Saul, who is the king. He is the one um, who is currently king over the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that both of these characters have completely different relationships with David. And therefore, will teach us a lot about what friendship looks like for one, but also what love looks like, um, which I think will inevitably reveal to us what a true, authentic love for Jesus looks like. So with that said, Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 18. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Okay, we're going to stop right there and we're going to start looking at everybody's relationship with David. And we're going to start with Jonathan. Um, here we see Jonathan and Saul, and I just want us to focus on Jonathan for a moment. We see Jonathan and David. They have a friendship. Uh, verse 1 and verse 3 is primarily, and verse 4 is kind of where we see it. And their friendship, we're going to see, is marked by unity. That is what their friendship revolves around. And it turns in and blooms into this really beautiful friendship throughout the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book. They have a wonderful friendship. And so here's kind of <clears throat> how I want to highlight it to you. Look at the word knit in verse 1. It says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. You can highlight that word, circle it, or write notes on it. That word is used typically in two different contexts, in two different ways. And the first way is in, uh, a lot of times, has to do with a family member. It's language used for family members, meaning um, for sons and daughters, for children, for brothers and sisters, which suggests that Jonathan and David became like siblings here. They became like brothers. That is what their relationship became like. Jonathan's soul was knit to David's like that of a brother. So that's one way that it's used. Another way that that word is used is also in unifying and binding people together for political purposes. So like political partnerships. Again, Jonathan is next in line for the throne, kind of political situation, and he is joining together and partnering with David, saying, hey, I'm recognizing you as a partner. And so either way, it's a unification that is happening. Second word I want you to look at is loved. It says it a couple times. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan joined his life to David, right? That's what we're seeing, this unification, rather than setting himself against David, even when there is every reason for rivalry, right? Jonathan is next in line for the throne, um, and what we're about to see is that he's quite literally giving himself um, away, giving his rights away for this royal claim to David. Um, David, of all people, is his biggest threat. If there's anyone else with a claim to the throne, like who in their right mind would want to give away the chance to be a king? But they, um, that's what's going on here. And a quick little note before I go any further on that, um, that I'm almost forgetting, is a lot of people will look at this and they see Jonathan's souls knit to David's and he loved him as his own soul. And then there's some other stuff that goes on in the chapter where Jonathan's embracing him and they're like having a moment, the whole thing. And a lot of people will ask, wait, were they like together? Like, did they have like a romantic kind of relationship? And that's what a lot of people will ask. And it's a great question. But as we'll see later, here's just a couple notes on that. Um, no, to answer the question for those of y'all that are like, well, is he? Is he? Um, David is the object of everyone's love in this story, not just Jonathan's. We're going to see later so many other people that say they love David, and it's not in a romantic, emotional kind of way. Second thing I want to point out is that in the ancient Near East and biblical times, that word love here that's being used here is never used in the sense of a romantic, emotional kind of way. It's typically only used for that kind of political partnership. Um, it's not an emotional thing. It's got implications for Jonathan here for kingship, for like power plays, the whole thing. Political partnership is what it's being used on. So answer is, is no, and there's a lot of arguments kind of for that. But to keep moving on, 
we see Jonathan initiate a covenant, covenant with David. He's saying, I've got your back through thick and thin. We're in this. It's a covenant relationship. Um, nothing can separate that. And then we see him clothe David, right? We see him clothe David with his robe, took it off of him, gives it to David, gives him his armor, gives him his sword, his bow, and his belt. Think um, about this time. Robes back then signified royalty. Um, how many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? Okay, one person. How about Game of Thrones? Be honest. Yeah, great show. Um, okay, you know, picture those movies and picture any of those movies kind of like that, right? Where the king is like kneeling, they're like knighting him or whatever, and then they put on like the big fur coat on him and he rises up and he's got this massive sword and the whole thing and they're like, king of the north, like the whole thing. Like picture that, that scene, right? Like when Aragon's getting crowned, the whole thing, giving like physical gold armor, that's what's happening here. Um, Jonathan is giving him all of these things that signified and, and distinguished him as royalty, and he's giving them all away to David. It's this huge visual saying, this guy is going to be the next king. He's giving over his rights, which is huge, right? Because Jonathan's heir to the throne, and he's giving it up, and he's rejoicing in it. He's saying, it's not about me. David takes precedence, laying his rights down, giving David everything that signified and distinguished him as the next king. You see, Jonathan is seeking unity when there's every reason for rivalry. Again, who in their right mind would give up their claim to the throne? Like, that is a wild claim and a wild right, and yet he's giving it away. And such selflessness is only possible, I believe, when you're in sync with the redemptive purposes of God, right? Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition if you're in Christ or conceit, but in humility count others more important and significant than yourselves. And we even see Jesus model that, right? In verses 6 and 7 of Philippians chapter 2, we see Jesus, who though in the form of God, did not count equality God, with God a thing to be grasped. But just like Jonathan, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And we see that modeled here. It's a self-emptying of, I'm not, it's not about me anymore. It's about David. Um, and he's giving David this symbol of royalty. So that's Jonathan and David's relationship. Now I want us to look at Saul and David. Um, look at verse 2. We see Saul takes David that day, wouldn't let him return to his house. Then down in verse 5, David went out, was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul set him over the men of war. Um, here's me being a Bible nerd for a little bit. Um, it says that Saul kept David, right? You can, if you have that translation, you can underline, circle that word, or took David, whatever it is in your translation. Um, back in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, verse 11, Samuel, who's a prophet, who the book is written after, is giving Israel what they asked for. He's giving them a king. And Israel's been begging for a king. We want a king. And Samuel's like, okay, like, um, God essentially allows it. And he's like, okay, let's give them a king. Samuel, you're going to announce it. Um, I'm going to give them what they want. And Samuel's like, you're not going to like it. Like, you want it? You're not going to like it. Here's what this king is going to do. And he starts listing off all of these things that the king is going to be marked by. This is a king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them as his soldiers. He will take your sons and appoint for himself commanders over thousands. He'll take some to plow and some to carry out acts of war and others to carry out equipment for war. He will take your daughters. He will take and take and take and take. And there's a list of just that language, 
of this king will take from you and keep things from you over and over and over again. And so that's what Saul's doing here. For a moment, you're like, oh, he's taking David because he likes David. But really, he's just taking um, David because he's useful to him, which is what Saul's relationship with David is all marked by. Just how useful can David B. Then we see in verse 5, he sets him over a ton of men, over all the men of his war. He kind of promotes him because David was good at what he did. It said he was successful. Um, At the end of chapter 18, it says he was more successful than all of Saul's servants. In verse 30, um, the whole thing, Saul saw a useful soldier and someone who satisfied a need of his. And so that's what his entire relationship with David is marked by, usefulness in total contrast to the unity that Jonathan's relationship with him is marked by. Um, And then that verse ended with, it was good in the sight of all the people. Um, The people's relationship with David is something that I want to highlight. I won't read all of them, but we're going to see that David, like I said earlier, becomes the object of love for everybody. Um, In verse 1 and verse 3, we see Jonathan loves David. In verse 16, you'll read all of Israel and Judah love David. Um, In verse 20 and 28, you see Saul's daughter loves David. In verse 22, Saul's servants love David. It's just this language over and over again. The people love David, and all of this is happening, and Saul is witnessing all of it. People like David. People love David, and they're losing love for him, and I can imagine that he's recalling what Samuel had told him earlier, Chapter 15, um, Samuel had told Saul, your rule and role as king, Saul, is coming to an end. You're not going to be king anymore. You're going to lose your kingdom, and God is going to replace you with someone better than you. And so I imagine, imagine that that is just playing over and over again in Saul's head. This is someone better than me. The people love him. I'm getting worried. And then we see Saul get extremely jealous. Verse 6, as they were coming home, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands. And then they also sang, and David his tens of thousands. And at this, Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. What more can they give him credit for but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. He grows really jealous. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. He gets angry while David was playing the lyre, and as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and all of Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Okay, there's a lot there. I'm going to unpack it. Let me summarize what happens after this. 
basically he sends David out. He's like, hey, you should marry my daughter. It's this kind of manipulative scheme that he's scheming up of like, typically when you married someone off, they had to do something for you, prove their worth, the whole thing. He goes, if you want to marry my daughter, who is beautiful and desirable, the whole thing, I need you to go fight for the Lord um, and prove yourself to me, essentially is what he's doing. And he says, if you want to marry this daughter, I need you to bring back a um, hundred like skins of the enemy. And that way I can know that you were up close and personal. You killed them all, the whole thing. Um, and David is like, okay, like I'm not worthy to be this. So what I've got to do is I've got to bring back double what he asked for. So that's what David did. And David brings back double what Saul asked for. He killed 200 Philistine men. He comes back and Saul's like, dang it. I didn't think he would survive. I hoped he would die. Like, that's why I sent him off to war. Because Saul didn't want it to look like he killed him. He wanted it to look like the Philistines killed him and got rid of him because he's that jealous. And so then in verse 28, um, when David comes back with double what Saul had asked for, people are admiring him even more. Verse 28 says, Saul saw this and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now let's stop right here and just look at the differences between Jonathan and Saul's thoughts and actions and attitudes toward David. Obviously, we've already seen how Jonathan loves David as a friend, unifies himself to David just as any loyal friend would. They're kind of like brothers. And Saul's relationship with David is simply centered on how useful David can be for him. And as soon as he stops being useful and benefiting him, he wants to drop him. But let's take a closer look and unpack everything we just read a bit. I've created this little chart for you note takers. Jonathan's relationship with David. It's marked by unification, right? Being knit together with him. Verse 1, by loving David. Verse 3, he recognizes and crowns David. It's not about me. He's going to be the next king. I perceive something else is greater is going on here. It's about him. He's selfless. He empties himself of his privileges, of his rights. He gives them to David. This really beautiful act of friendship. And then on the flip side, Saul's relationship with David is marked by anger. It's marked by aggression. He tries to pin him against the wall twice with the spear. That is gnarly and violent. Um, it's marked by fear, demotion. If you remember, Saul set him over all of his men of war. And then in verse th 13, we see Saul demote him to just a thousand and removes him and tries to get rid of him by going to fight his battles, by scheming and manipulating. And then it says that he was David's enemy continually. Um, and if you noticed, the words, the Lord is with David, is mentioned two or three times in this passage, which means Saul's not just an enemy with David at this point. He's now also an enemy of the Lord because the Lord is with David. And chapters 19 and 20, just the Spark Notes version, which you should go read, it's very Games of Throny stuff, um, is just more of this. It's more of him getting angry, more of him getting violent. He almost kills his own son. Um, Saul tries to kill David one more time. David escapes. Um, David's wife, Saul's daughter, helps him escape. It's a really wild story there. Saul hunts David down. Some stuff goes down. Jonathan warns David. He defends him, protects David. A really clever way, honestly. Um, and then Saul tries killing his own son out of anger for loving David. And the, what we see by the end of chapter 20 is that the internal realities of Jonathan and Saul could not be more different. You see, Saul had a spirit of fear. And his spirit of fear marked the spirit of the enemy, which in 1 Peter chapter 5 says is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, which is exactly what Saul's doing. He wants to kill David. He sends him off to war 
There's more deaths that happen. He almost kills his own son. He's just being consumed by the spirit of fear. On the other hand, Jonathan has a spirit of love, right? It, which reflects the heart of God in contrast to the heart of the enemy. Second Timothy 1 says that we are given, if we are in Christ, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and of self-control. And that is what Jonathan looks like. And here's something else that I noticed that I think marks the contrast of these two characters even further. Jonathan probably didn't even know that David would be king. It was likely that it probably hadn't even been revealed to him, if you're familiar with the story before this, that God had anointed David as king over Israel and that he would one day take the throne. He just sees and perceives this is a leader, a man after God's own heart. There's something greater going on beyond me. I'm going to give up. I'm going to empty myself of my rights and privileges. It's not about me. It's about David. And he gives himself up. So he probably doesn't even know. The nation of Israel probably doesn't even know completely yet either, and they're leaning the same way. But Saul, on the other hand, he knows. He's been told. He was told that he's going to be replaced. He's been told that David is a man after God's own heart and will replace him as king. And he is the anointed one. And he resists that. He resists God. And he doesn't give in to God. He says, I am king. I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to get and do what I want. I'm the king, not David. Simply put, Saul doesn't give in to God. And the results, he's progressively alienated from his family. His son and his own daughter both defend the same man that he's trying to kill, and they don't trust him. He ends up losing his trust and respect of his supporters later on in the story. Um, he even loses a grip on his own mental capacities. He tries to kill David by pinning him to the wall. That's crazy. And then he tries to kill his own son by throwing a spear at him too. He's just consumed by anger and fear that he can't even control it anymore. And this is where I want us to start looking at our own lives. What about you and me? What about us? What are the ways that we don't give in to God? And how are we resisting him? What are the things that we are fearful of letting go of or giving up because God has asked us to? What are we gripping tight to and even feel entitled to? Like Saul was gripping tight to his kingdom. He felt entitled to it. I'm the king, not David. How are we doing that and how is that going for us? Is it actually promoting the wholeness that we so desperately crave or is it only giving us the opposite? More brokenness, more fear, more insecurity, more anxiety. You see, I at least know my um, story, and maybe you relate to it a little bit, but um, Nathan growing up was a lonely kid and a little chubby. Um, I, some of y'all saw some pictures this past weekend of me at Halloween, and I'm, I'm a chubster for sure. Um, I look like a pumpkin. Um, besides the point. Anyways, I was lonely. I was insecure. Um, because I was chubby, I had like body image issues, the whole thing. I just didn't have a great view of myself. And then come along to high school and I get my like first real kind of serious girlfriend that's beyond like, you know, flirting and texting in middle school. Um, and I get my first real girlfriend and I start realizing certain things are getting satisfied in me. I have sex for the first time, and there's that loneliness that's more intimate than I ever could have thought. Um, that insecurity that I thought is like, well, maybe I have some value and some worth if this girl is willing to sleep with me. And then I started hanging out with friends who were drinking all the time, and I became like, you know, cool because I'm with them and I'm doing the things that they're doing. And so all of these insecurities of mine of feeling lonely and all of these values, 
all of those things, those desires and longings, they were getting met by all these things. And it worked for a long time, right? That marked my high school experience and then into college. My college freshman year here at TCU was just more of that. It was more of if I want it, I can get it. If I'm feeling lonely, I can go out. If I'm feeling insecure, I can find my worth. And if, you know, this girl is going to sleep with me or not or whatever it was. And then here's what I started realizing around my sophomore year. The more and more that I did that, the more and more that I craved it. It was feeling a need for sure. It was working. I, w- I didn't feel lonely in the moment. I didn't feel insecure in the moment and it worked and I would crave a little bit more. And then what happened is I would indulge in whatever it was and then I would be done or whatever and I felt a little more empty and it became this vicious cycle of craving a little bit more, indulging, feeling a little more empty. Okay, now I'm craving more. I need to fix it, indulging a little more and now I'm left a little more empty. And aren't you just like me? if you're honest with yourself. Hoping that some person, something, some event, something will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being and wholeness and completeness that you desire. Don't you often hope maybe this book, maybe this sermon, maybe this podcast or this idea or mindset or trip or lifestyle or degree or job or relationship, maybe that will fulfill my deepest desire. As long as we do that, as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment and that magical moment, you will go on running anxiously, always insecure, always restless, always lustful, always angry, and never fully satisfied. That is the vicious cycle. It simultaneously keeps us going. Yes, you crave a little bit more, but it also simultaneously keeps us wondering if we're ever getting anywhere at all in the long run. And it is exhausting. John 10.10 says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And that thief is real and he's the enemy. And all he does is take and take and take and take. That is who your enemy is. He feeds you the lie just a little bit more until you look up and you're starved from the reality that you have just a little bit less. And that is what leads to spiritual death. You see, the devil, the enemy, is smart. He's clever. He's cunning. He slowly and subtly will eat you alive. And before you know it, you're going to look up, and we don't have wholeness. We don't have life and life abundant or anywhere close to it. Well, some good news. You and I don't have to kill ourselves. It's my friend Henry Nowen, who you should all read from a book called Life of the Beloved. He says, you and I don't have to kill ourselves. We are the beloved. We are intimately loved long before our parents, teachers, spouses, children, and friends ever loved or wounded us. That's the truth of our lives. That's the truth spoken by the voice of the God of the universe who says, you are my beloved. Now, I want you to listen to this voice. Listen to this part with all of your attention, I want you to hear the words that say, I have called you by name. From the very beginning, you are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. I've molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I've carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care 
more intimate than that of a mother for a child. I've counted every hair on your head and guided you at every single step. Wherever you go, I go with you, and wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, and I know you as my own. You belong to me. We are one. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will ever separate us because I love you. But do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Yes, Lord, I love you, sweet daughter. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, beloved son. Do you love me? Friends, it is not possible to have a neutral love or a half-in, half-out kind of love with Jesus. And don't hear me say that that kind of love, that half-in, half-out kind of love is just lazy or irresponsible or undesirable. No, hear me say that that kind of love is impossible. And that simply just has to do with who Jesus is. He says, I want all of you. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sell all that you have and follow me. Give up everything you have and follow me. Matthew 12 verse 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. You cannot be half in and half out. You either love him or you don't. So how do we love him? John 14 verse 15 says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, what are his commandments? Mark 12 verses 28 through 30 say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love people as you love yourself. Loving Jesus there looks like obeying his commandments, which looks like loving God and loving people as yourself. Um, I'll have them up there for you to write, I think, but love God. What does that look like? I'm going to Honestly, I'm going to skip this one, and we're going to go back to that one later. Let me talk about what loving people looks like. Loving people, just like Jonathan loved David. Do you see and love others as your brothers and your sisters? Do you see and look at others with value and with worth as sons and daughters of the king? And then do you, how do you love yourself? Love others as you love yourself. Are you cultivating a spirit of love, or are you cultivating a spirit of of fear. And how do you cultivate a spirit of love? It looks like this idea of abiding, which is in John 15. Abide in me. I am the vine. Jesus, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, right? A spirit of fear, if you noticed, everything that was listed on Saul's list over there was all, if you read Galatians 5, things that come out of your own flesh. Things like anger and jealousy and bitterness and sexual desire. The whole slew of it is all out of the flesh. But on the flip hand, the fruit of the Spirit looks like things like love and joy and peace and kindness, goodness, self-control, all of those things. Are you cultivating that by being in His Word, being in prayer, being in community and communing with God and cultivating that life in the Spirit? Here's what I want to leave you with, though. Loving God. Um, John 15, verse 12 through 13 says, it says this, this is my commandment. This is Jesus talking that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love one another as I have loved you. There's no greater love than someone laying down his life for his friends. That is what Jesus did for each of us. He laid down his life for us. That is the way that he has loved each of us and each of you in this room. 
He's a God who said, I know you. I know your mistakes. I know the things that have been done to you. I know your wounds. I know your burdens. I know all of it. I know all the sin that you will ever do. Romans 5, 8 says, but even still, while we were still sinners, while we, while we were still broken and imperfect, God showed his love for us and that he died for us. He died on a cross. He said, I love you so much that I'm willing to go to a cross for you. That is how he loves us, by laying his life down. And so loving God looks like being unified to that. Do you believe that? Are you unified with Jesus? Is the old dead and has the new been raised to life? That is what Jesus is about, bringing dead people to life. Are you unified with Christ? Putting off the old self, things like anger and bitterness and jealousy, and bringing up the new self that looks like Jesus and only comes from a relationship with Jesus, which are things like forgiveness and kindness and goodness and all of those things. Are you unified with Jesus? Maybe that is a question that you're being asked for the first time and something that you're considering for the first time. Do you love Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? That is where this whole thing starts. And then from there on, it looks like crowning him and recognizing him, just like Jonathan did with David, as king of your life. My life is not my own. It's not about me. It's about you, Jesus. You are king. That is what this is about. A king and a God who says, my grace is sufficient for you. And is that, it's that kind of grace that fuels a life of obedience for me and looking more and more like me. Do you love him? Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and how you love us. And Father, we just pray that, um, uh, Father, that you would help us cultivate a spirit of love that's in you, that you would help us look more and more like you, Lord, that we would yield to you and, um, and what you're doing in each of our lives, Lord. And would we not ignore any poking and proddings of your spirit, of the things that you're asking us to lay down before you and give up and loosen our grip on, Lord, um, and trust you with. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would meet each of us in this room, and even as we go back into worship, um, we would catch a glimpse of how much you love us. Would you make your love abundantly clear um, to each of us in this room, and would we be changed by it? That's our hope. That's our prayer. We love you. It's your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.